2: I, just for one, have always loved sadness. I love sad movies. I love sad books. I love sad stories. They make me feel like I'm connected to reality instead of fantasy.
3: This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. Fourteen years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this podcast, Debbie talks with singer-songwriter Shirley Manson about the value of speaking up.
2: I am so a believer in speaking out to destroy shame. Shame is something that festers inside us through our silence. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make
0: Design Matters possible. Is your team designing an app from scratch, rethinking the look and feel of your brand, maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way, passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD, now for free with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Shirley Manson is a rock and roll legend. She is the lead singer of the multi-platinum, multi-award winning band Garbage. She is also an actress and starred on the hit television show Terminator, The Sarah Connor Chronicles. She has also been described as being dark and emotional, and she's okay with that. The singer from Edinburgh wants her listeners to feel sadness, loneliness, disappointment, and frustration, all of the emotions that are part of life. On a recent trip to Mexico, I got a chance to sit down with Shirley Manson while she was on tour in Puebla to talk about her career, her music, and the long road that brought her to where she
2: is today. Are we in business? We are.
0: Excellent. Um, Shirley, I understand that not only were you a Brownie Scout growing up, um, I also read that you've been known to recite your Brownie Scout creed on occasion and was wondering if there was any chance that I could get
2: you to do that today. I promise that I'll do my best to do my duty to God to serve the Queen and help other people and to keep the Brownie Guide law. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and for those who are just listening and not watching, I did have my little salute Yes, you did. You my did. three finger salute. Do you know that I still have my brownie pins? Oh, see, I'm jealous. I wish I'd kept mine.
0: I still have them. And every now and then I'll take them out of this little box that I have of ephemera from my childhood. And I sort of look at them and remember and sort of astounded that so much time has gone by. And, you know, that was so important to my Quite life at beautiful. the time.
2: Yeah, I love that.
0: So I know that your mom, Muriel, was conceived on the Highlands by a butler and a governess, and she was an orphan until she was adopted at five years old. As a result, you've said that she always felt inferior and tried hard to be a part of things and to make everyone feel good. And you've said that in many ways you grew up doing the same. And I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about why.
2: Well, I didn't grow up doing the same, funnily enough. Um, My mom certainly fostered a very sort of loving home and she was obsessed with the, the concept of family. So family was a very, something that was really important to her and she absolutely sublimated herself for the family unit. And, and as I was growing up, I think I was quite intimidated by that. And I think that's one of the reasons I never had children because I was just like frightened, I think, by how serious she took her role as a, as a matriarch, you know. But once my mum died... I really suddenly realised that the brightest light in my life had gone out. And one of the things that really struck me the day of her funeral was a friend of hers had come up to me and said, you know, every time I met your mum, it didn't matter what was going on in my life. I would always leave her company feeling better than I had before I bumped into her. And I remember thinking, wow, that energy, my mum's light and energy's gone. And I'm a dark horse, you know, I've spent my whole life dark, and I've always treasured the dark and always been a bit scared of light in a funny way. And in some ways I still am. And yet the day my mum died, I really decided that I was going to try and bring light into my relationships and into the world. And and so after, you know, 45 years of being a bit of a, like I said, a dark horse, I, I've turned my attitude around a little. I read that after
0: she passed that you were determined to become the architect of your own life.
2: Mm. And wondering how that realization came to be. Well, two things, really. My mom always used to say, you need to engineer your own happiness. You need to engineer your own life. Nobody's going to do it for you. And I never really fully understood that again until she died because she had been my Joan of Arc, really. And she fixed every problem I had, usually, you know, particularly emotionally. My mom could fix anything that I was feeling. And when she left this earth... I realised, okay, (laughs) I think I know what she was talking about now. And um, I started to, to really focus on the idea of making myself feel good in my life on a daily basis because I suddenly was aware that my time was running out and I didn't want to spend it sitting on the couch feeling miserable and sorry for myself.
0: Your dad was a research scientist at Edinburgh University in the department that eventually famously cloned Dolly the sheep. So were you aware of all of that happening at the time?
2: I was vaguely aware. The funny thing is, you know, when we were growing up, my dad did specialize in genetics, in particularly Animal genetics. And me and my sisters just thought this was the most boring subject of all time. And it wasn't again until we were older when we suddenly realized he was at the forefront of some of the most important subject matter in medicine and science, um, in the future, so on and so, so forth. So I'm very proud of my father, actually. But um, growing up, he would conduct strange uh, experiments in our garden shed with eggs and maggots and God knows what. I mean, my dad is a real eccentric. And uh, has, has been a hugely inspiring figure in my life and remains so. He's such an adventurer and he's so curious. I guess you get a lot from him in terms
0: of your own alchemy and, and working to make things different.
2: I don't have nearly as much get up and go as my father. Um, but he, you know, he's a very religious man, very devout, and yet he's a scientist. And so I was brought up with this duality in my thinking, which I'm very grateful for. Um, I don't see that they have to be exclusive necessarily because my father always seemed to make this duality make complete sense to me. Well, I was looking and when I was doing my research and I saw that he was a Sunday
0: school teacher mm-hmm. as well my as
2: Sunday school teacher, which was even worse. Oh,
0: oh! oh I didn't even realize. <laughs> <laughs> you were, so you had to be in the class while he was yes. teaching. No, but you were also bullied as a child. Was he witnessing any of that? You were bullied because you were a redhead.
2: Yeah, I mean, that's a common part of growing up or certainly back then. And, you know, I grew up in the the 70s, basically, in Scotland. And being a redhead, you know, you're part of 2% of the population. You're just a natural target. And so, yeah, I got bullied and people made fun of me. But it wasn't until I got into high school, secondary school, where I had a proper, seriously, physically imposing bully. And she really did scare the bejesus out of me. But, yeah, my parents knew about it because I told them about it. But their philosophy was you just have to deal with this. You need to figure out a way of dealing with it. And I was furious at them. But I'm very grateful, ultimately, because in my life I am no longer even capable of being bullied as it turns out <laughs> yeah. yeah, because I just learned how to deal with it you know um, but you know every child has their own story um, you know you think that you're solely you know the one who is the target of people's wrath but I think people like to bully other people I think we're seeing that we're in the white houses currently so that's just part and parcel of growing up I think
0: well, despite your bullying, you said that your childhood was pretty normal. You mm-hmm. studied violin and clarinet. You played in the school orchestra. You also sang with the choir. Then when you were a senior in high school, you began smoking and drinking, sniffing glue, shoplifting. And on one occasion...
2: <laughs> you make me sound like such a charming character. <laughs> I actually think you sound
0: fascinating. But on, on one occasion, you even broke into the Edinburgh Zoo. And, and what happened to cause that kind of transition? Was it because of this overt bullying?
2: No, I don't think it was really I mean, I certainly got very angry by being bullied and not having anyone run to my defence. That much I do know. But I was also a redhead and we are highly strung as a as a Breed. And there's a lot of reasons for that. And it's been proven scientifically that we have a different gene, you know, and that causes us to experience pain differently, experience heat differently, and cold differently. I mean, there's a whole list of isms that come along with being a redhead. But I think it was hormonal. And I also think it was a sensitivity that the rest of my family didn't enjoy. And I choose these words very carefully, because when I was growing up, I was told I was too sensitive. I was hypersensitive. I was just being sensitive. And I began to think of sensitivity as something bad. And of course, now that I'm older, I realize it's a great gift to be sensitive and to have empathy and understand what it's like for another person. But back then, I didn't understand this. And I felt like I had this sort of perception of the world that nobody else in my family enjoyed and agreed upon and invested in and so I was always the odd one out in my family I was very emotional they weren't I would like to speak about things and examine things they didn't And so there you have it, you know. So I was furious because I wasn't really being heard. I wasn't really being seen. And so I think I made a determination. You will hear me and you will see me. And I was a middle child and I didn't feel I got much of anything. Like I always got hand-me-downs. Like all my clothes were hand-me-downs for my sister. And the little one got a lot of privileges because she was a baby and she was really cute. And I hated cute. (laughs) And I still kind of loathe cute. Cute doesn't work for me. And so I think that built this character who just determined to, like I said, be seen and heard. At that time of your life, you wanted to become an actress mm. and you tried to get into the Royal
0: Scottish Academy of Music and Drama, but were rejected.
2: Oh, the pain still hurts. Oh, my God. How <laughs> is that possible? Surely how, you were rejected. I mean, I, can you imagine what they think now? I th- I'm sure they're relieved. I'm sure they're relieved they rejected me. Um, but yeah, it was a it was a great sadness for me because that is kind of what I wanted to do. And my two best friends at the time both got accepted to RADA in London. And I was the loser in my mind you know, inverted commas. And uh, I had to change my my whole concept of what my future might hold. What were you imagining you were going to do at that point? Well, I have, I have no idea. actually. I, I did spiral into a lot of panic, that much I do know. But it was around this same time that I was approached to join a band. So the problem kind of got solved for me without me actually having to... Actively lift a finger, which disappoints me somewhat. But I got very fortunate. Well, you your first job
0: was doing volunteer work in a
2: local hospital's
0: cafeteria. You then went on to become a breakfast waitress (laughs) at a local hotel. Then you went on to spend five years as a shop assistant at Miss Selvage's department store. So I wouldn't say that it was just like (laughs) boom, boom. You got another opportunity, a rock star. No, no, well, maybe not. Yeah, and I actually read that you started working in the cosmetics department at Miss Selvage's, but were eventually moved to the stock rooms because of your attitude to the
2: customers I did have a very very poor attitude towards the customers <laughs> I mean I'm not doing? particularly servile I, certainly back then I wasn't now I understand the beauty in service but then I didn't I was very unpleasant and aggressive and uh, yes arrogant one would say well, in the early 80s, while working at Miss
0: Selfridge's, you, Martin and John Metcalf, John Grunken, Finn Wilson, Derek Kelly, and Rona Scobie. Did I pronounce that correctly? That is perfect. Oh, good. Uh, started the band Goodbye, Mr. McKenzie. And I believe the band's name came from the 1931 novel
2: After Leaving Mr. McKenzie. So yeah, by Gene th- Reese. Yeah. yeah,
0: so talk about that. How well, that, that has nothing to
2: do with me, sadly. I mean, it's a lovely literature reference, but that actually was all down to Martin Metcalf, the lead singer. And he, the band was actually in place by the time Rona and I and Finn joined the band. So. And so how did they know
0: that you were even interested in being in a band?
2: I mean, you were, you were asked to join the band. What made them think that you'd be a good member of the band? Well, Martin was the one who approached me. And the reason he met me was because we were both in... I was in the Edinburgh Youth Theatre pursuing my dream of acting. And Martin was pulled in to help us with a Fringe production Um, I can't even remember which production it was, but it was to perform at the Fringe in Edinburgh at the big arts festival there. And we were scanty on good singers. He came in to help us. And basically, I think he fell in love with me and he wanted to keep me around, I think. And he asked me to join his band as a keyboard player. And I, I learned piano when I was young. So I was like, yeah, I'll join your band for want of nothing better to do, because that was the summer that I got rejected from the Royal Academy. So... The rest is history. And when did they all realize that you had this killer voice? I don't think anybody's really ever discovered i have a killer voice to be honest i think they realized i was a dedicated member to the group which i certainly was i mean i was in that band for a decade and i didn't sort of take a percentage of the profits or anything i i, I didn't really make any money i i didn't ask for any money i'd get a pd every day a per day you know from martin and kelly who were the sort of you know the bosses in the band and i was just a good like group player team player team yeah. player yeah
0: the band signed with a major label and nearly made it to the big time, and you then formed another band named Angelfish with some members of Goodbye Mr. Mackenzie. Afterward, the label wanted you as a solo artist, and you formed the band with some members of Goodbye Mr. McKenzie. In 1994, MTV's show 120 Minutes aired a video for the band's song Suffocate Me. They aired it exactly one time. But it was a video that would change
2: your life. Did you even know that MTV was going to air that video? I can't remember if we knew or not. I mean, we were certainly... I began to get a little bit of buzz on the East Coast of America down to a a female journalist who I'm ashamed to say I've forgotten her name. But she had sort of presented Angelfish in the Rolling Stone magazine as one to watch. And so we were starting to get a little bit of word of mouth. But yeah, we, I don't think I knew that video was getting played. And it came as a great shock when out of the blue, I got contacted by the manager of Garbage. As it yeah. turns out, Garbage was already formed at this point. So Steve Marker,
0: Duke Erickson and Butch Vig, who had recently hit the big time for producing Nirvana's Nevermind,
2: The Smashing Pumpkins. Well, Butch was the only one who produced Nevermind. Yes, Mind. yes.
0: But Steve was the one that was watching the episode. And what happened next?
2: Yes, yeah, Steve was watching it, which is, funnily enough, he's still a night owl. And he was my fairy godmother, essentially. He was the one who took me to the other two because they were looking for a vocalist and said, I found this girl last night on TV. She got, She's got a lovely voice and... I think she'd be a cool person to work with. Let's track her down. And so they sent their management to find me. And literally within 24 hours, which is kind of a miracle, they did get hold of me and I got a phone call out the blue from my a and in Los Angeles, Phil Schuster, um, who said, hey, I've got something really strange to share with you. The producer, American producer of Nevermind by Nirvana, uh, Butchvig, wants to discuss a meeting with you. And would you be up for that? And I was like, oh my God, yeah, of course. And but so the first thing, audition, audition didn't go well, right? Well, I first of all met them in London, uh, the three of them uh, in, a, in the Landmark Hotel in London. And we got along really, really well. But it was presented to me as a project. Garbage was a project in which they would work with a variety of different singers. And would I be interested in singing a song with them? Well, of course, I said yes. And then we left that night and I went home to my friend's flat in London. And We stuck on the news. And of course, it was the night that Kurt Cobain had committed suicide. I mean, I was a huge Nirvana fan anyway, but the fact that I just left Butch Vig's side, it really struck me, you know, as, as strange and weird. And I felt this bizarre connection with Butch. And that has remained a strange sadness for all of us in Garbage that somehow we sort of were birthed out of that, you know, the death of of a true great, you know. But they then called me up when I was on tour in America and I went and auditioned with them and it was a fiasco of monumental proportions. How come? (laughs) Well, they stuck me upstairs in their kitchen and then they ran a, a lead down to the basement in Madison, Wisconsin, in Steve's house. And they were in this sort of man cave downstairs in the basement and they would shout up things like, we're just going to run a track, you know, just make up some words and some music, just, just as you feel. And I had never written a word of music in my life before. Sorry, a note of music and or a word of music. And so I was just stuck at a microphone much like this with a track playing in my ears, ice cold, full of panic. And I didn't know what to do. And I just sort of mumbled into the microphone. I mean, literally like a mad person. And so it was a fiasco. And they were downstairs going, whoa, this isn't going very well. Ha <laughs> ha! But then we hung out that night at a bar and we just really got along well. I mean, we still get along well 25 years later. So you can imagine when you're meeting for the first time and you have a connection with someone, we just got on like a house on fire. And so that was the reason they called me back and said, we think you should try again. Are you up for it? And I was like, yeah, I'm totally up for it. And by this point, I was a bit more prepared and I realized, OK, it's now or never. You jump in and you make up some words and you come up with a melody or you don't. It's your call. And of course, I got in front of a microphone and I got the gig.
0: When did you become a full-fledged member? Right then and there?
2: No, not right then and there, but pretty soon. We had finished the record and my, my record company w- was headed by a, a very famous music manager called Gary Kurfürst, who's mostly known for his work with Talking Heads and Blondie and the Ramones. I mean, he's this phenomenal, brilliant character who loved me and was my biggest champion. And he said to me, if you want to have a good career with garbage, if you're serious, they're going to have to commit to you and they need to buy out your contract and I will sell your contract for $10,000, which is a steal because he wanted me to do well. He knew this was a great opportunity. And the lawyers that looked after the band and the record label that they were on refused to spend the 10 grand. They were like, no, we're not going to buy her. We're just going to play it by ear. We'll see how this project goes. Well, very quickly, the project started like really rolling along and it was clearly at least of quality. And so the band themselves eventually said, we're going to cut you in as a full member because otherwise, why would you invest your time in this? But they could have got me for 10 grand, but they didn't. So it worked out great for me in the end. But. Now you've said this about being in
0: the band. I've always been the odd one out in garbage. I was never part of the gang. I'm much younger and I had a different upbringing. They'd been friends for 20 years before I came along. So I always felt out of things. Even when we got to playing live, I felt like I was letting them down in some way. I wasn't Bono. I wasn't Whitney Houston. I just felt like at every turn I was failing. You can't possibly still feel this way.
2: I don't feel that way anymore, but I would be lying if I said that I hadn't felt like that up until quite recently. Really, Shirley? Mm. Why? Well, for a lot of different reasons. I mean, we could go into it. I mean, it's just so dull, but I've had a hard time in my life feeling confident and believing in myself. And that has taken me up to the age of, I'd say, 50 before I finally started to really believe in my own worth. And I get the feeling you having just spent some time in your company, you feel the same way. Like it took a long time. Like you said, for you, it was 40 years. For me, I was closer say, to 50. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you go, closer to 50. Well, I probably don't need to explain to you, but it took me a long time to fight off bizarre, buried feelings of worthlessness. And I'm not going to bore your listeners with why. Suffice to say, I have dug myself out of it, but it's only very recently that I've started to say I do bring something of worth to my band. I am bloody good at what I do. I have worked my ass off and I deserve this as much as anybody does. But um, being in a band with a very well-respected music producer in a industry that really values male talent and has struggled ever recognizing female talent, compounded my feelings of worthlessness. And that is no fault of anybody's but my own. I allowed it to affect me that way. And now that I'm older, I have figured my way through this nonsense. But it took me a while. Is there any one thing you can point to that was the catalyst
0: to that breaking through?
2: I talk about my mother's death a lot. My mother dying was definitely when I was like, it was a slap in the face where I realized, all right, you need to be an adult. You can no longer be a baby girl. You can't suck your thumb and sit in the corner. You're going to have to stand up, muster through this. That was one. Secondly, I went on hiatus with my band and I decided, well, does this mean I do nothing or do I continue to forge a career? I decided I was going to forge a career because I thought I would die if I didn't have music in, in my life. So I decided to extract myself from the group and I chose myself a new lawyer and I made a phone call to someone involved in the garbage camp. I won't name his his name because it's best, I think, for his dignity that I don't. But he told me, you're a fool getting your own separate lawyer. Who do you think you are, says he? You will be nothing without your band. And in that moment, something ignited in my stomach I can only put it that way. A fire ignited in my belly and I thought, how dare you speak to me like this? You know, I was a 45, really accomplished career woman. I'd made not only myself, you know, a, a life for myself, but I'd made people millions of dollars. And I thought, and I'm sitting on a phone listening to a man berate me because I've decided to find a lawyer to represent me and my interests alone. And that was the turning point for me. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. Perfect.
0: I, I came across an article where you spoke with a journalist about how you had adopted a rescue terrier saying, I took her to behavioral training because you never know what you're inheriting with a rescue dog. And the first thing the trainer said was there is no such thing as an aggressive dog, only a scared dog. And I know that influenced how you thought about your own fears. And, and I'm wondering if that was part of it as well.
2: Yeah, I mean, it sounds like I sound like a cookie mad person, you know, like a a dog lady, but I am a dog lady. And there's a reason for that, because rescuing my dog did change my attitude to my own life and my own way through life. Because, yeah, I have felt scared a lot my life. And as a result, I've been very aggressive. I am definitely an aggressive woman, without a doubt. And I'm not going to make any apologies for it. I'm grateful to have been an aggressive woman. It served me very well. However, that episode that you refer to about my dog uh, really made me think because when the the trainer said that about Vila, my beautiful terrier, tears sprung to my eyes because I was like, I'm I'm the terrier here, which I am. So why I've always loved terriers and a bond was forged between me and my dog right there that has remained with me now for 13 years and she has done nothing but teach me how to try and move through my day to day existence. And there's been so many lessons, this mute little creature, well, not so mute always, but like communicated these really important life lessons to me. I don't know if I would have been able to experience true love if I hadn't
0: had my experience with my two dogs who really taught me what it means to love yeah. without even really needing to get anything tangible back other than the feelings that they gave me yeah and it was the one of the greatest gifts of my life transformative gifts of my life
2: i 'm with you there they jo- are joyful around you they they show that they 're happy to see you and a lot of the time I was like wow well, i don 't show people that I love necessarily how delighted I am to see them and that has informed my relationships, my human relationships absolutely you know? and I think it's okay that we don't experience selfless love or a unconditional love i don 't think there's a, there's such a thing quite frankly for me personally. But I do believe in joyful, loving symbiosis.
0: Your lyrics have been described as melancholic and dark. You talked before about being dark, but you've found that reductive and have stated, people get uncomfortable when you tell the truth. I don't. I'm happy to feel. I want to feel every single fucking thing. I want to feel the breeze, the punch, the disappointment. I want to feel love, lust, and everything in between. I want to feel it all. I'm a greedy motherfucker. (laughs) If that makes me dark, so be it.
2: I'm into that, sister.
0: So I was sharing this with some friends <laughs> last night. I said, "This is this is what this is Shirley. This is the woman I am meeting tomorrow." And my friend Zoe sent me this excerpt she'd come across from a letter Georgia O'Keeffe wrote to her friend Anita Pulitzer, and I thought you'd really enjoy it. Your letters are certainly like drinks of fine cold spring water on a hot day. They have a spark of the kind of fire in them that makes life worthwhile, that nervous energy that makes people like you and I want to go after everything in the world, bump our heads on all the hard walls, and scratch our hands on all the briars, but it makes living great doesn't it? I'm glad people want everything in the world good and bad bitter and sweet I want it all too and a lot of it too
2: that's giving me the goosebumps I love that I love that quote when did big
0: fat emotions and being sensitive and wanting a lot become something that was considered negative or greedy why is that considered greedy it seems like it's table stakes for living
2: it is table stakes but I think people shut themselves down to try and protect themselves because they get disappointed it's all about disappointment I think and being afraid of, of feeling disappointed. And we have also been taught by society that darkness is bad. You know, white is good. Black is bad. And, you know, darkness is scary. Brightness is where nothing bad ever happens. I mean, there's, there's all these kind of weird subliminal messagings that go on in our culture that I think teach us to be afraid afraid of feeling, afraid of experiencing sadness. You know, we're, we're taught that there's something wrong with us if we're not feeling happy all the time. And so people are scared to be judged, so they, they try and pretend they're happy all the time and put a smile on their face. You know, particularly for women, you know, culturally, we're always taught, smile, you need to smile. Smile more, why don't you smile? You know, this bullshit that women are taught. Oh, somebody be, says that to me now, I oh, just, I know, just bite punch their heads the off. But, you know, we're taught to be pleasing, and pleasant company, not challenging company, not uh, aggressive in any way. So I think there's a lot. I just, for one, have always loved sadness. I love sad movies. I love sad books. I love sad stories. They make me feel like I'm connected to reality instead of fantasy. Fantasy scares me. I feel like I want to be prepared for the inevitable things that happen death primarily, is my biggest teacher. In what way? First of all, I'm aware that time is ticking. I don't want to waste any time. And so why do I feel it that way? Well, because I'm going to die. I don't want to be unkind to people because, well, they might die. (laughs) I mean, it's just like really basic, moronic thinking. I'm a moron. I think that's maybe why I've survived so well. I have very strong survival instincts and I always want to be aware of danger. So to be aware of danger, you have to know where the danger lies. To see danger, you need to be looking At all fronts, you know, behind you, below you, above you and in all the different colours. That's just how I, that's what I believe in, you know, to stay safe, you need to see it all. And why would you willfully cut out a whole part of your experience just to pretend that things are okay? You know, and people don't want to appear weak. They don't want to say I'm hurting. I haven't figured my life out. Uh, my marriage is unhappy. My children are unhappy. I'm unhappy. People don't want to say that. They feel that they're failures or they'll be seen as losers. And we're living currently in a climate where winning is everything. Winning. It's like, well, I'm the first person to say, well, actually things aren't going so well. You know, we just got dropped by our record label or I don't know how to do this. How do I fix this? And I think some people are scared to do that.
0: You have your own record label now. You have your, you, you release your own music whenever you want to, however you want to. I was reading an article where you were asked if you missed the trappings of the 90s music industry, the huge platinum sales, the massive budgets, the big music videos. And you said that you did not miss it with one shred of your body,
2: that you did not miss <laughs> it at all. I mean, success wasn't what I thought it was going to be. I really thought success would change me and turn me into somebody i thought i wasn't like what i thought i'd be beyonce you know perfect and i was became really successful and i was still little old me i didn't feel any better i didn't look any better i didn't behave any better friendships weren't any better i mean it it was a really interesting ride and i'm very grateful it happened to me and i i don't want to knock the fact that the success of my band was a great gift And and I feel spectacularly lucky and I'm very grateful for it. But I in no way became married to or attached to everything that came along with people loving on our band. I mean, I want people to love on my band. I want people to love the music because to me that means I have connected with people. And that to me is really important. But money really isn't that important to me. And status is of complete irrelevance to me. I, I think it's ludicrous. And people that enjoy status turn my stomach why is that? Because to me, it speaks of power, self-elevation. You want to be above someone else. And that's just not what I believe in. I'm a egalitarian. I believe that every, all of us, were absolutely all the same. We're all equal. Nobody's any better than anyone else. Nobody's any smarter. I mean, there's certainly m- more intelligent people that happen, you know, there's geniuses there's great minds that are great scientists and doctors and what lawyers and god knows what else teachers there's definitely intelligence and that's a gift you're given but in terms of smarts you know i i don't know i don't know if if some of the most intelligent people i've ever met are some of the dumbest cats i've hung out with (laughs) you know what i mean absolutely and some of the so-called illiterate people i've met i've got the most incredible skills people skills and street skills that I've ever encountered. So to me, I believe wholeheartedly we're all the same. And, and, there, and therefore, elevation and status repulses me. I'm scared of it. I think anyone who who enjoys even the slightest amount of status, they are just little seeds waiting to sprout into monsters. I want to talk to you
0: um, about being on television and, and your TV show with Garbage on Hiatus You got a call from a producer that you met at Gwen Stefani's Baby Shower, which I kind of just love the visual of that. (laughs) Um, And you subsequently got a job on the Terminator television show, The Sarah Connor Chronicles, playing an assassin robot, like perfect typecasting. (laughs) Of, Of the move to acting, you've said it was great to be in a beginner's mindset, to not have a clue about the rules, to be scared. And on your last tour in 2005, at the time, you would walk on stage and your blood pressure wouldn't change. You weren't excited. And that was sad because it was something that you'd loved so much. Shirley, you said that your Terminator character, devoid of emotion and filled with power, was therapeutic to play at that time. In your life. I think it would be therapeutic to play at any time in anybody's life. I mean, I can only fantasize what that would be like.
2: Well, it's funny, you know, that I got to play a robot with no emotions at- exactly the time my beloved mother was dying and anyone who's lost a beautiful amazing person in their life particularly a mother understands what that feeling of of helplessness is and I was railing against the gods I mean I was out of my mind and yet I could go on set and play this powerful maniac that everyone was terrified of and she could get anything she wanted and pretty much change any situation she wanted to and all I wanted to do was at that time was saved my mother's life. And as a robot, I fantasized that I could. If only, right? If only, yeah. You've been
0: very candid about how you've struggled throughout your life with body dysmorphia and have said that the sensation of never feeling good enough or pretty enough will always be there. And earlier this year, and the impetus for my writing to you about being on Design Matters, You had the opportunity to write an article for the New York Times, and they asked you to write a column about a first time of your choosing on any topic you wished, and you chose to write about how, when you were a young teenager, you began cutting yourself to deal with anxiety, stress, and depression. It was an incredibly emotionally haunting article. The first line of the piece is this, I didn't know I was a cutter until the first time I chose to cut. Shirley, what made you decide to write about that experience? You've you've spoken about it in the past. Uh, This was the first time that you actually wrote so in-depth about the experience, what you'd been through.
2: Well, I was approached by the New York Times through our publicist, Brian Bunbury, who's one of my greatest fans in life. And he's always like trying to push me into like, you need to write, you're a great writer, you need to go and do a podcast, you know, you're really good at these kind of things. And he, I think, had persuaded the New York Times to allow me to write one of their columns for this project that they have called Firsts or First Time, I think it's called. And I was excited to get the opportunity for any writer to write for the New York Times is a big deal. So, I mean, I took it very seriously and they asked me for a couple of subjects that I'd be willing to write about. Ironically, I wanted to write about a rescue dog and I think they just thought I was going to write a boring column about a doggy and loving on a doggy and of course that was not my intention at all but they didn't want the column on the dog so I said, how about I write about being a a cutter, self-armer and they said that would be great, go for it and so I wrote this piece and, and it's funny because I got so much response from it, from people, that I was kind of taken aback because everyone was like, oh, you're so brave. You're so this, that. And the next thing and I was like, no, let me, let me set you straight. This was not bravery to write about this. This is uh, communication about something I really feel strongly about, have experience in. And it's a subject that's still an incredible taboo. And I just feel like, I want to break all taboos. I feel like there's no harm in speaking about things, even if it's uncomfortable for some of us, you know. And so I enjoyed writing the piece, as it turns out. I I, I took great pleasure in getting to write on such an amazing platform as the New York Times about something I consider very important and is incredibly prevalent and has now actually become something that's quite prevalent amongst young men too. It's interesting about the notion
0: of, of bravery, I can understand why people would say that to you. Over the years, as I've become more comfortable with abuse that I've been inflicted with, I've been much more vocal about it. But most of my adult life, I would say for the first 50 years, maybe even more, I was totally ashamed to talk about any of it, thinking that I was damaged and that I was somehow um, inferior just as a human so I can understand both sides, you know, seeing yeah. seeing the strength that it takes to be able to share something that is so painful and has caused so much damage to, to your life, but then to be on the other side of it and say, if this can help one person, if this can change some law, if this could put a light on the darkness of the shame, then it's worth every moment of discomfort to be able to do it. I was struck by the candor in the way that you approached it. It was very, um, it was very straightforward. And you close the article with this paragraph, and I'd really like to read it if you don't mind. You say, Today I try to remain vigilant against these old thought patterns. I vow to hold my ground. I choose to speak up. I attempt to be kind, not only to myself, but also to other people. I surround myself with those who treat me well. I strive to be creative and determined to do things that will make me happy. I believe this is not what we look like that is important, but who we are. It is how we choose to move through this bewildering world of ours that truly matters. And when I struggle with my sense of self, as I often do, I summon to mind the layers, a poem by the great Stanley Kunitz. No doubt the next chapter in my book of transformations is already written. I am not done with my changes. Thank you for writing that, Shirley, because I think that you were writing about one specific experience to you, but I think with any self harm or any self destruction or any shame, this is something that could help everyone.
2: Well, you know, it's funny because I think it's no coincidence that I wrote this around about the time that the Me Too movement was was really prevalent in in our culture. And I was starting to get really concerned that the voices of women were again being drowned out and and the sort of circus surrounding all these amazing women who were brave enough and defiant enough to come out and stab their spear into their past. I decided that I wanted to put my own voice out there too because I think when you show that you're willing to illuminate your pain or your shame then it always helps someone else feel that they have the right to then voice their defiance. I am so a believer in speaking out to destroy shame. Shame is something that festers inside us through our silence and we must all continue to speak up Over and over and over again, as loudly as we can. We must encourage our sisters, our brothers, our children who are also suffering at the hands of sexual violence and all colours, all creeds, you know. So I feel strongly that we just all have to continue to pour out are examples of our private shames, in adverted commas. Yes. And then it no longer is shameful because it's commonplace. Exactly. It's only brave before you do it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I
0: just want to finish our interview today with a quote and one last question. So this is the quote. Looking back this year, you said, I never imagined in my wildest dreams I'd even have the opportunity to have a career this long. I want to show women that you can have a career at this age because I grew up believing that women were basically tossed at the age of 30. And then I discovered Patti Smith and I discovered Chrissy Hind, and I discovered Debbie Harry. And those women have inspired me to keep on making music, to be an artist, be creative in the same way that our male contemporaries do. Men don't fold up their wings and say goodnight when they're 30. Far from it, never have. I want to say to young generations of women, no, you do not disappear. You hold your ground and you develop skills behind, beyond your good looks, because ultimately those are the skills that propel you into having long careers. And I feel so strongly about it and so adamantly about it that I'm not going anywhere anytime soon. (laughs) Thank you for that, Shirley.
2: Uh, I have my fist in the air currently. <laughs> yes, you do. And I
0: would too if I weren't holding so many damn things right now. <laughs> so this is the last thing I want to ask you. Um, it's about a statement in an interview you did quite a while back. And you said that you'd like the following written on your tombstone. See,
2: I told you so. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I still want that on my tombstone. So tell stone. me why. Why that line? Just as kind of a, a silly and funny and truthful point that I've always said, we're going to die. We're going to die. So make life count. We're going to die. We're going to die. So make it good. Make it adventurous. You know, again, obviously, you know, I'm 52 years old and I have to figure out my next half century and I'll be damned if it's going to be boring. I feel like it is down to me to try and make it better than my first half. And quite frankly, I don't enjoy being young particularly, so I feel like the odds are on me. I feel like I can make my second half of my century, if I'm lucky to live that long, a good one.
0: No doubt, sure. <laughs> no doubt. There's a t-shirt I'm going to send you. It says 50 as fuck. <laughs>
2: Oh, that's sounds amazing. Please give me that. <laughs>
0: amazing. Shirley Manson, thank you so much for creating so much wonderful work in this world. And thank you for being on this very special episode of Design Matters in Pueblo, Mexico. Thank you for having me. It's been an honor. For more information about Shirley Manson, go to www.garbage.com. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters. And I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember... We can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
3: For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash Debbie slash Millman. That's d.rip slash Debbie dash Millman. And if you really like this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Adobe XD and Wix.com.